I am really bad at directions, really bad. GPS was created for individuals like me. And before we had GPS, I'd get lost all the time. I've been in this city for like 21 years, and I still am always turning the wrong place and getting to... Part of it's because I'm not good with directions, and part of it is I'm a distracted driver, not in the sense that I'm not paying attention to the road, but that my mind is moving, and I'm, you know, I'm thinking I'm daydreaming, and I've missed turns all the time. And, um, you know, uh, before there was GPS, there's, you know, the stereotype of men never pulling over for directions, not me. I'd pull over all the time because I'm just like, you know what, I'm lost. I got to stop. I'm wasting time. I hate wasting time. I'm wasting time again. I'd pull over, pull over. Terrible. When Susan and I first got married, we were uh, visiting some friends in South Carolina. We drove down there, amazingly, in my very first car, which was a 1985 Chevy Cavalier. basically looked like a box. And uh, I can't believe that it made it. We drove down there in this car, bought it for like $1,200. You know, it was the kind of car where if you got a flat tire, you could, you could, you could reach in your glove box and pull out a compact disc and change the tire to that. Um, I know some of you don't know what compact discs are, but anyways, it's the kind of car it was. I remember we got stopped in front of the Southern 500 NASCAR uh, stadium and uh, NASCAR is inexplicably uh, uh, auto racing in which you only turn left I think the whole time or something like that but uh, anyways uh, we got stopped in front of it and they were letting out the traffic and it was like sitting in a car with no air conditioning on on the highway with this with the southern sun beating down on us it was like being on the outer rim of hell as we were just cooking in the car like two little pastries in an oven Susan and I and uh, as they let all the traffic out, and on our way home from that, you know, we had fun with our friends, but on our way home in this little car, sure enough, I got lost, and we're driving, on, and all of a sudden, I see this sign, you know, welcome to Tennessee, and I'm like, what? How did, how did we, what's going on here? It just completely missed the sign. We've been studying the book of Genesis, the beginning, looking at God's grace from the get-go, and it's sign after sign after sign after sign of his goodness, his love, and his grace. But, you know, it's easy to miss the signs. It's easy to get distracted by particulars and miss the, the grandness of what God's trying to show us. And this, the text this morning is from Genesis chapter 9. I'm going to read the first 17 verses. And again, we're given a great sign. Um, the, the flood narrative, which is what we've kind of been looking at last week and this week, is it's a simultaneous act, not only of judgment on evil, but a saving mercy from evil. And it's easy for us to uh, miss that. But before I read Genesis 9, I just want to kind of frame this and say that Hebrew is a very imaginative language. Hebrew invites you to listen and to visualize, and it's prompting you to notice familiar things. So, for example, in the first nine chapters, I'm going to summarize them really quick. You notice that in the beginning, the world was covered in water, and the Spirit hovered over the face of the waters. And then in the days of Noah, you find that the earth is covered in water and a dove is sent out to hover over the face of the waters. And then in the beginning, you notice that God causes the water to recede and dry land comes up out of the waters. And then in the days of Noah, you find that God again causes the waters to recede and dry land comes up uh, out of of the waters. In the beginning, God causes all of the dry land to come up out of the water so that life can be possible. In the days of Noah, God causes the dry land to come up out of the waters so that again life can be possible. In both cases, you're seeing a picture of resurrection. You're seeing a picture of God moving in grace so that life can come from death. And we get that right at, at, right at the, at the get-go. And this theme of recreation 
is God showing us over and over and over throughout Scripture that the God of creation is the God of recreation. It keeps culminating throughout the entire Old Testament until you find it anticipating the gospel and culminating in Jesus Christ. And now we look again for the signs of God's great love and grace from Genesis chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every morning, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I have given you green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth that is with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me And you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds over the earth, a bow is seen in the clouds. I will remember my covenant that it is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is God's word. Now, in verse 1, we find that God gives Noah the exact same cultural mandate that he gave to Adam. Did you recognize that? Did you hear it? Be fruitful and multiply. To be fruitful is to use your gifts and your reasoning and everything that God placed inside you to go and, 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 and flourish and create civilization. That's to, be, that's to be fruitful. To multiply is to have children, right? Chapter 9 sounds a little bit like God is this cosmic director, and he's kind of saying, okay, people, once more from the top, because he's saying the same thing to Noah that he said to Adam. Now, uh, back in, I think it was 2014 or 2013 or something like that, I had the opportunity to be on set in an independent film, and I've been on set where a director says, okay, I do it again from the top. I remember being on one particular scene where there was a gentleman, a middle-aged gentleman that was cast in a role. He'd never done any acting before in his life, but he looked the part, so they, they, they had him do this particular part, and there were no amount of takes that was going to help him deliver these lines because he'd never done it before, so it didn't matter how many takes the director gave him, he was not going to deliver these lines. Now, in Genesis chapter 9, God is not saying, okay, from the top, because if I just give you another take, humanity is going to be able to get it right. Mankind is given a new beginning, but no amount of takes was going to help. And he didn't have it with, mankind didn't have it within him to do it. So God's plan isn't that we're going to save ourselves with a reboot. God's plan is that he'd save us 
with the Redeemer. And so in this text that we just read, we find that God expresses his law to protect human flourishing, and then he foreshadows his gospel that will provide eternal flourishing. And this gives us insight into God. We recognize that God is not a cosmic killjoy who is obsessed with rule-keeping. What we find is that God is a loving Father committed to guiding his children into flourishing. So here's today's sermon in a sentence. It's that we exercise stewardship because the earth belongs to God. We seek justice and dignity for everyone because all people bear the image of God. And we do this from the rest and renewal of our covenant of grace with God. So first, let's look at how we exercise stewardship because the earth belongs to God. If you look at verses 2 and 3 where God says, listen, I'm giving everything into your hand. If you just had those two verses on their own, that'd be misleading because it would kind of sound like, hey, I've given the earth, do whatever you want with it with no restriction. Uh, But what we find is that as you read through verses 10 and 12 and 16, God is actually making a binding promise to creation himself. God actually goes so far as to say he's made a covenant with the earth. So God never calls anybody into a covenant relationship unless it's a saving relationship. And that's repeated throughout scripture. You're in trouble. I'm going to save you. So I'm going to come into a covenant relationship with you. And I'm going to save you from sin. I'm going to save you from the finality of death and destruction. Right? That's the hope of the gospel. It's not that Christians can escape suffering and death. It's that suffering and death are never final for us. That's the hope of the gospel. And so God promises right here in Genesis 9 to bring resurrection from destruction. And here we find that God makes a a covenant promise to the physical environment. Think about that for a minute. Nature is not sinful. Nature suffers because we're sinful. Paul spells that out in Romans 8. He says that creation itself is groaning for salvation. And in the end, creation is going to be delivered from decay. And so God's covenant with nature informs our Christian worldview. It's that God called Noah and really all of us as believers into ecological stewardship. I'm going to borrow from Tim Keller here. I've been using a number of sources for this Genesis series. Tim Keller's uh, work in Genesis is one of them, and I can't say it any better than he said it, so I'm just going to quote him. This is what he says. He talks about ecological stewardship, and he says, it's our job to keep the choir singing. It's our job to join them in the singing. It's our job to steward the earth because we're fallen in a way that nature is not. We look at nature, and we have to confess that nature is being obedient in a way that we're not. The clam is, is being a clam Uh, that it was created to be better than I'm being the man that God created me to be. This is an interesting picture. And so for all of our family and our friends who are exploring Christian faith, this is the encouragement, that Christian faith is very hopeful. The Christian worldview is very hopeful because it's not only intellectually stimulating, uh, because the deeper you explore, explore the precision in the universe, you have to bend your knee and confess that there's an intelligent divine designer behind it, but it's also psychologically satisfying because God made a covenant with the earth, which means in the end we don't lose ourselves and just float around and be, you know, ethereal. God is restoring the natural. He's made a covenant with the earth. Before he talks about his covenant with us in grace, he talks about this covenant with the earth. So that teaches us something. It's very encouraging because in all other world religions, you're either trying to escape nature or you lose your sense of self because after you die you become a part of nature or only spiritual things matter, so you're indifferent to nature. But in Genesis 9, our God makes a covenant uh, not only with humanity, but with his creation. And so what we learn is that the king of creation is coming to restore the creation. And so Christian faith gives us a totally different motivation for environmental 
stewardship. We don't do it because we worship the earth. We don't, we don't do it because we're afraid and we're fearful and future generations need the earth. We do it because we're children of grace and we worship the Lord of heaven and earth. It's a completely different motivation. And again, for our family and our friends who are exploring Christian faith, Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the wonder and the glory of God. So if nature is declaring something, that means nature has a voice, which is precisely why we feel like when we look at nature, its beauty is calling us in. Right? We look at the bigness of the sky or the wondrous formation of the clouds or the vastness of the ocean or the tranquility of the lake when you're at the cottage or you're, you're, you're mesmerized and you feel so small when you look into the, the expanse of the stars at night. The reason for all of these feelings that we have is because nature is declaring something. It has a voice. It's singing the praises of its maker and it's inviting our souls to call in. So we do our stewardship from a Christian uh, point of view because uh, precisely uh, we do it because, um, as I lose my place in my notes here, we steward it because the earth belongs to God. And so as we move on and look at the next thing, which is seeking justice and dignity for everyone because we're all bearing the image of God. As, As you see how the text flows, Noah's just getting out of the ark. He, he's literally just got out of the ark, and God is now talking about not killing people. Did you notice that? So you see, Noah wasn't a righteous man in, within himself. If Noah, God saved Noah because Noah was personally righteous you know, in and of himself, then when they were taking their first steps off the ark, God wouldn't be saying, don't, okay, don't shed blood. But the reason he's saying it is because the animals weren't the only thing that Noah took on the ark. They took their sin on the ark, too. And so the world before the flood, it was utterly corrupt. It was overrun and it was destroyed by violence and violation and oppression and injustice. And so in verses 5 and 6 that we just read, God expresses his attitude toward all human life. He declares that all human life has dignity and it's sacred. And so God assigns this dignity to human life and he draws this line in the sand and he says, I'm the creator, you're the creation, and as such we have to give dignity to every human life. Now, if you think about it, if there was no God, then man had very low beginnings and we crawled out of primordial soup for no reason and we evolved. And if life did start out very low for no reason, then the debates about the value of human life would make sense, right? Because if the quality isn't good or defective or we don't want the life, then those things don't check out, then we can get rid of the life. But if our origins were, you know, an accidental collocation of molecules then Nishi got it right when Nishi said, we came from nothing, therefore our end is nothing, therefore we are living life between two nothings, contemplating our nothingness. Right? Nishi's right, if that's true, if, we, if man started low. But man didn't start low. Genesis 9 teaches us that man actually started very high. And so what we learn is that God teaches that, no, 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 Humanity didn't have low beginnings. We had very high beginnings. We didn't meander purposelessly out of a primordial soup. We were purposefully fashioned by the hands of a great and loving God. And so in nature, you have the strong eating the weak. But here in verses 4 through 6, God says, that's not my design for humanity, that the strong just takes over the weak. Here God gives uh, you know, a law outside of nature, a standard outside of nature, that governs the sanctity of all human life inside of nature. So the basis for all of our social justice and our mercy as Christians is because all people have dignity 
on the basis that they are image bearers of God. That's what Genesis 9 teaches us. We all are image bearers of God, not just Christians. It's not that Christians are image bearers of God and everybody who doesn't have Christian faith is not an image bearer of God. It's that regardless of class or culture or religion or sexual orientation, all humans are image bearers of God and they deserve to be treated with dignity. Now, distorted Christianity will think, well, no, 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 you can't give dignity to those who don't share our Christian ethics or don't share our Christian faith. A distorted Christianity will say, well, you can't give dignity and respect or, you know, to agnostics or atheists or the LGBTQ community or someone with gender dysphoria because they don't share in all of my Christian views. But that's a distortion. See, everyone, including those who reject God, including those who reject Christ, including those who don't believe the gospel, including those who don't share our Christian ethics, right, or our Christian sexual ethics, all of those people, They are image bearers of God, and so we give them dignity. And so what makes the church a loving community is is not that we abandon our conviction and broaden it to accept every other community. What makes the church a loving community is that by grace, we extend dignity to those who don't share our convictions. We don't abandon our convictions. And so that's why this passage teaches us here, by God saying, don't take a life, Right? When, when that's where, where he goes with it, is that God gives his common grace to everyone, including everybody who doesn't receive his saving grace. Saving grace is believing the gospel, that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life we could never live, that he died an atoning death, that he rose again, and that he ascended, giving us hope. That's saving grace. But common grace is that God breathed his life into everyone. God has given gifts to everyone. God has put things in people so that this, so that this city flourishes with all manner of gift and ability because God has given his common, common grace to everyone and so he's, everyone bears his image. That's why God considers an assault on life an assault on him because he's the giver of life. So we exercise stewardship because the earth belongs to God and we seek justice and dignity for everyone because everybody bears an image of God. But the sermon can't just stop there. Okay, great. Everybody good? We're going to exercise stewardship. We're going to be environmentally responsible. We're going to do love and justice and mercy. Let's pray and go home. No, 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 no. The whole life that we live comes from something. It flows from rest and renewal in our covenant grace with God. In verse 12, God gives us a tremendous sign. And so we don't want to miss it like I'm always missing signs. This tremendous sign, the sign of the covenant, he says, I am making with you. With this symbol, God gives us this picture of a very specific kind of relationship that he's inviting us into. It's based on grace. So a covenant means a promise. It's a relationship of promise. So scripturally, like I said earlier, the covenant relationship is a saving relationship. In the ancient world, covenants went two directions. Well, today, promises go two directions. I keep my end, you keep your end, and everything's okay. But if you don't keep up your end, then I'm absolved of my end. But God's covenant, the rainbow, the sign, God's covenant from the beginning has always been one way. I will keep this. I will be faithful, though you're not faithful. Because if I am not the keeper of the covenant, humanity cannot be saved. You cannot save yourself. So we get this great sign. Everything that God requires from us because he's holy, he provides for us because he's gracious and we can't save ourselves. So the scripture here in the rainbow, it actually shows us what God wants. He doesn't want us to believe in him in a general intellectual way. He calls us to trust him in a supreme way. 
He doesn't want us to simply concede that God exists in an academic way. He loves us and he wants us to love him in a personal way. The rainbow is a sign that God is not calling us into nominal belief, but he's calling us into personal relationship. And when I say personal relationship with God, I don't mean that we shrink God down and we calibrate him and we put him in our pocket like our personal Siri and, and, uh, we, and, and so that he affirms everything that's already in our, in our hearts. By personal relationship with God, I'm talking about being swept up into his redemptive narrative. I'm talking about uh, a spiritual rescue that recalibrates our hearts. We're not reorienting God, you know, to, to what's in our hearts. He's, he is recalibrating our disordered hearts. And so there's a personal trust in his saving grace. And so I want you to consider when you find rainbows, storms, the whole reason the rainbow exists is because a storm exists. You don't find rainbows on sunny days where there's no cloud in the sky. There's no rainbows. If you're driving along and you see dark clouds in the background and a bright rainbow in the, in the front, in the foreground, everybody stops and takes pictures. Why? Why do we do that? Because the contrast of light breaking through darkness, it touches every human soul. Double rainbow all the way across the sky. It just it t- does something to us. And so the rainbow presupposes that there's darkness. It's there because of the darkness. Nobody finds God's grace on a sunny day. None of you found God's grace on a sunny day. I didn't find God's grace on a sunny day. It's the troubles of life. It's coming face-to-face with our weakness. It's coming face-to-face with our insufficiency, our insecurity. Maybe it's sitting at a funeral and staring at a casket where for a moment we're, we're yanked out of all of the distractions and the pleasures of life and we're considering our mortality. Everybody has done that who's ever been to a funeral. It's in those storms that we're shown our need. And it's, it's, it's in the storms. It's, it's, there's not a person in this room that, whose life doesn't have storms. I'm not living a a storm-free life. There's no Christian that's living a storm-free life. There's no one throughout all of history, and you can read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you're not going to find anybody who is living a storm-free life. There's not a person in here, starting with the preacher, whose heart doesn't need strength, and whose mind doesn't need peace, and whose soul doesn't need rest. And so the rainbow puts the sweeping promise of God's grace on display. Rainbows are actually created when light reflect, uh, is refracted through rain. In other words, the light changes direction. It passes through the rain and the storm. The rainbow is the sign that says that for all who trust in God, there's a change of direction. There's a spiritual renewal in the heart. There's a spiritual renewal in the mind. Our sin is absolved. There is no more condemnation. There is forgiveness. We are free. The light of God's grace, it refracts the darkness of sin, and it creates something totally new in the hearts of those who have received grace. It begins this beautiful renewal. The rainbow is a sign of a second chance. Not in the reboot, but in the Redeemer. God's sweeping promise in the rainbow, it says that there is a way that there can be no condemnation and no judgment for the sin of all who trust in him. How is that possible? The Hebrew word for rainbow is kesheth. And it appears 76 times throughout the Old Testament. But it's not talking about 76 rainbows. If you read through the Old Testament and you find where this word kesheth is, it's a war bow every time. 
So what we learn here, this great sign, this picture that God gives here, is that um, God has hung up his weapon. To the original Hebrew audience, hearing this for the first time, when they heard Keshach, they would have not have thought of that beautiful thing in the sky, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, purple. They would have got there because they would have said, oh, the Keshach is in the clouds. It must be this rainbow. But the original audience would have just heard, and God has hung up his Keshach in the clouds. He put the war bow away. It's amazing. And, this is, and God didn't put his war bow away because the flood was an overreaction and God feels bad about it and he's saying, okay, I won't do that again. That was a bit extreme. God hanging up his war bow in the sky isn't God like a basketball player who, you know, knocks a guy on the ground and then he gets up and he hits himself in the chest and he goes, my bad. God hanging up the war bow isn't him saying, my bad. You see, you want to remember that the Hebrew word that was used, and I talked about this last week, the Hebrew word that was used for God's judgment is the same exact word that was used to describe the earth. So God was saying, I will bring destruction to the destruction. God wasn't bringing destruction to innocence. There was no innocence. God was bringing destruction to destruction. And so in that, you find that God's judgment in the flood was not a knee-jerk reaction from a cosmic perfectionist who is frustrated that his people couldn't get it right. The rainbow in the sky, the, the judgment that preceded it, the darkness that preceded it, that warranted it, it was God interrupting an irreversible and devastating spiral of violence. And then he, in grace, saves one undeserving family. Again, not so that through that Noah's descendants we could save ourselves with a reboot, but that through Noah's descendants, God would save us with the Redeemer. So this flood was a simultaneous act of judgment against violence, against humanity, and an act of saving mercy to preserve humanity. So he puts the bow in the sky. He hangs up the kishath to foreshadow the gospel. He was going to make a way where there was no way. He was going to make a way for sinners to be justified so that we could receive God's grace and not receive God's judgment. And so now I'm going to borrow from Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher from the, the 18th century. Right? It says, just look at how God put the bow in the sky. If it was pointed down, that should make us nervous. The reason God is able to lay his bow in the sky is because it's aimed up. God has not stopped being a God of judgment. Right? If God, if God was not angry at violence or injustice or impression, and in the end God was going to just let all evil get off scot-free, that God is not worth worshipping. But God actually aims the arrows of his wrath someplace else. His judgment is not pointed down toward mankind, but it's pointed up into the very heart of heaven. And so at the cross, Jesus Christ is in a great storm. At the cross and in the crucifixion, the sky grows dark, it grows black. God is holy, so a sinless Savior had to die for our sin. But God is gracious, so he comes as the sinless Savior who is willing to die for our sin. And at the cross, the storm of God's judgment is met by the light of God's mercy. Jesus absolves all the darkness of God's judgment so that we can absolve and bask in the light of all of God's grace. And so if you read the Bible and you interpret it like it's all about you, then the Bible is going to be very exhausting because whatever goodness you're up to, it's not enough. It's never enough. But if you read the Bible like it's about God and what he has come to do, then the Bible is very liberating because you will see over and over and over that Christ is enough and we are in him. Christ is enough and we are united to him. And that does a beautiful renewal. And this grace changes everything because by relating to God on the basis of this grace, the rainbow is saying you need to relate to me on the basis of grace. 
our hearts are actually at rest. We actually have a, a, a sense of self-worth that is divine. Because without this deep inner sense of divine worth, we won't relate to the earth and we won't relate to others because we truly see their worth. We're going to actually do ecological stewardship and social justice as a means of curating our own worth. I'm a social justice warrior. I care about the environment. I'm a good person. Affirm me. Tell me I'm good. Tell me, tell me my, you know, we're going to be clamoring using people and things to prop up the worth that actually the worth comes from the sign of that gracious rainbow in the sky that says, I'm united to Christ, my Savior. I have received God's grace. I'm in a covenant relationship with him, and I have a sense of worth, and I'm living from freedom of that worth. I don't need to wear my ecological stewardship or my social justice like an ID badge. I'm free to love and care for the earth and for people because my worth and my dignity actually comes from God. Jonathan Edwards says it this way, religious people look for ways to make God useful, but gospel people find God beautiful. And if you look at pop theology today, it's the same kind of idea. Welcome to church. How are you doing? Everybody have a seat. Today's sermon is about how I can make God more useful. And our itching ears go, yeah, I'm really interested in this. But the gospel over and over and over is showing us that God is beautiful. That Christ is beautiful. He's not a tool that is useful. He's a saving God that is beautiful. And in that, he does this beautiful, renewing work in our hearts. And so uh, through this whole text, we see again over and over that the trajectory of, of the scriptures is not evacuation, but restoration. And so this gives us this great rest as, as those who've been saved by God's grace, that we are now ministers of that reconciliation. We rest in grace and we minister it. We rest in the gospel and we minister from it. And the scriptures don't burden us to be the ones who have to accomplish restoration. And the scriptures aren't, you know, giving us a free pass to just sit back and observe God do all the restoration. The glorious gospel that we've been invited to, that covenant relationship that God has invited it into, makes us gracious participants in the restoration. He is doing it. But yet, because our hearts are being renewed, we want to live that way in the city and be those who minister God's grace from that rest of grace. And so God's grace is present in your storm and in my storm. That's where we see the grace. That's how we received it. That's how we continually live to enjoy it. You'll remember in the New Testament, Paul prays three times in the middle of a very personal storm. Oh God, would you take this thorn away from me? And three times Jesus re replies to him and he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And so there's plenty of voices today that will say, if you have enough faith, you can live a storm-free life. If you have enough faith, here's how, you can, here's how you're going to just get your miracle time after time after time, and this, God's going to just blow all those storms away. Now, that's very popular to talk that way, but it's naive. It burdens the church. It misrepresents Christian faith. It, it misses the entire hope of the gospel. It misses the sign because nobody has a storm-free life. We're actually brought face-to-face -face with our need in the storm, and then we find God's grace in the storm, and God's grace strengthens our hearts in the storm because God's grace is for the storm. And so, regardless of whatever you know, storms you're going through in your life right now that are very real, whether they were by your own doing, by your own hand, or whether they were by the hand of another, we find 
the great promise of God's grace. The, the storm is not a commentary on how God feels about you. The sign is not the storm. But what do we do as modern, you know, North Americans who are very pragmatic? Is when something is going wrong in our life, we're like, okay, something's going wrong. This is a sign, right? What do I got to start doing? What do I got to stop doing? How do I shift? And I'm not saying that there aren't uh, uh, biblical truths that should be applied or there should be sin that we need to confess. That we need to confess. All of those things are good and true. What I'm saying is, what you, the storm you're going through in your life is not the sign of how God feels about you. That's not the sign that he gave to say, what can I look at that gives me a reference of how God feels about you? If you want to know how God feels about you, then you have to look at the signs that he gave. And the signs that he has given is the cross. It is the water of your baptism. It is the bread and the cup. These are the signs that he has given that tell us how he feels about us. These are the signs that point us to the sunlight of his mercy. These are the signs that break into the darkness of the storms of our sin, and they meet us in the storms of our brokenness, and these are, the, these are the signs that shine the light of his love into our hearts and they overcome the storms of suffering. These are the signs that give us hope and strength and peace. If you want to know what God is like, then you've got to look at Jesus. And if you want to know how he feels about you, you've got to look at the cross. And so we live our lives and we do our stewardship and we give dignity to all people from the rest and the renewal of our covenant of grace with God. Amen. Let's pray.